Hello, I'm Laura Castleton, U.S. Head of Portfolio Construction and Strategy at Janice Henderson Investors. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. On July 2nd, a Miami-based IT software company with international headquarters in Dublin, Ireland, called Kaseya, suffered a ransomware attack that disrupted hundreds of companies located in several countries. Cyber criminals with the Russia-linked group R-Evil burrowed into Kaseya's systems Friday and infected hundreds of the company's clients in over 12 countries. Hundreds of supermarkets in Sweden are forced to close after a cyber attack that's hit organizations all around the world. Hackers demanding $70 million in Bitcoin to restore the company's data. Kaseya supplies software to technology service providers that then administer the software to tens of thousands of other small businesses around the world. Our Future of Everything intern, Ava Sasani, was researching cybersecurity innovations when the Kaseya attack happened. Hey, Ava. Hi, Janet. Tell us more about this attack. It's my understanding it had a cascade effect and the breach ended up affecting between 800 and 1500 businesses in like a dozen countries. Yeah, and not only did it impact hundreds of businesses, one of the most shocking things about this story is that Kaseya knew it was vulnerable. A Dutch cybersecurity group warned Kaseya about their weaknesses nearly three months before the attack. We contacted them on the 6th of April. This is cybersecurity researcher Victor Gevers. He helps lead the Dutch Institute for Vulnerability Disclosure. That's a group of volunteers who are software engineers, data journalists, and students by day, and so-called ethical hackers by night. We have a mission, and that is to make the digital world safer by reporting vulnerabilities we find in online and digital systems. Gevers and his colleagues scanned the internet looking for weaknesses in software that could be potentially exploited by cybercriminals. When the Dutch team found seven potentially dangerous weaknesses in Kaseya's software back in April, they made recommendations for how the company could and should tighten up their cybersecurity. And they took action. The Dutch team recommended that Kaseya fix the seven vulnerabilities within three months. The goal was to beat cybercriminals to the punch. Here's Dan Timpson, Kaseya's chief technology officer. One of the things that we get asked a lot is, well, you know, you, you had a heads up, like, why didn't you fix it faster? But I'm sure that you can appreciate some bugs are more difficult to fix than others. Kaseya was almost done. By July 2nd, the company says it had fixed four of the original seven bugs and had started patching the final three. But they weren't fast enough. Timpson says that just a few days before the internal deadline, the bad guys noticed an open door and they entered. You know, like you said, we were in process with those last few uh, when the exploit was conducted. So yeah, it is unfortunate on the timing. A Russian-linked cyber gang named R-Evil originally asked for $70 million in Bitcoin to unlock all of the infected systems. Kaseya stated that R-Evil never directly asked for a ransom. On July 22nd, Kaseya received a key to unlock the data that had been taken hostage by the hackers. A few days later, Kaseya released another statement saying they never paid our evil's ransom. Gever says it's hard to outsmart gangs like our evil. They have deep pockets and expertise in every step of the ransomware process. 
breaking in, deploying malware, stealing data, and extorting victims. The professionals, the criminals in this case, they're just a better team. They have the best of supplements, money and time is not an issue. We have seen a number of cyber attacks over the past several months, and the so-called professionals, these criminals, appear to be adding to the win column all the time. That's correct. In the past few months alone, we've seen attacks on Colonial Pipeline, which led to the shutdown of a massive pipeline that provides almost half the supply of gas to the East Coast. There have been attacks on hospitals and schools. And then last year, we saw the hack of another IT software company called SolarWinds, in which Russian hackers accessed corporate networks and U.S. government systems. So this is a clear national security threat. To protect the government and U.S. infrastructure, the Pentagon has been tapping some of the best minds in cybersecurity to develop tools that would shield us against foreign bad actors. They have different approaches and are developing some new strategies for the future. From the Wall Street Journal, this is the future of everything. I'm Janet Babin. Today on the podcast, two competing futures in the fight against cyber attacks. One that focuses on a race between good and bad hackers, and the other that wants to reimagine that race entirely. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic is your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. With models at every point on the price-performance curve, you no longer have to make trade-offs between intelligence, speed, and cost. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between skills and speed, and Haiku is the fastest and lowest-cost model on the market, perfectly designed for high-volume, high-speed use cases. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to keep them at the frontier. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude today. This race between good and bad hackers predates the Kaseya attack. There's a whole industry dedicated to finding and fixing bugs before cyber criminals can use those vulnerabilities for harm. The idea is that you stop the bad hackers with good hackers. That's essentially the strategy that Kaseya used by working with the Dutch cybersecurity nonprofit. They're part of a growing ecosystem of good hackers seeking out software flaws. Some companies even pay for this information in what's called a bug bounty program. Uh, bug bounty program? What is that? Yeah, think bounty hunters. See, in their spare time, some programmers like to poke around other people's software and try to find holes or errors in their code. It just takes a few keystrokes to see the code that makes a web page. An error or loophole in the code is a bug. The bug could be super simple and harmless, like an image on a web page that doesn't load. But it could also be something more nefarious, like a vulnerability that could allow bad hackers to introduce a virus into a computer. A bug could also create a gateway into a company's databases. So what do the bug hunters do then when they find a weakness? Well, if these programmers are white hats, they might warn the company about the bug they found. And in return, the company might give them a bounty, usually some amount of money. 
Now, there are bug bounty firms that have formalized this process and act as a middleman between the hackers and the companies. They also vet the programmers to make sure they're not bad hackers posing as software engineers. These ethical hackers then are racing to find the same bugs that the cyber criminals are looking for as well? Exactly. And this industry of bug hunting has been growing for a while. The leading bug bounty company, HackerOne, is projected to pay out a total of $1 billion in bounties by 2025. Microsoft, Facebook, Google, nearly every U.S. tech giant invites in external ethical hackers to look for bugs in their system. And it's not just Silicon Valley. The Defense Department uses white hats, too. What you have to know about hackers is they have a different way of looking at the world. I spoke to one programmer who helped set up the Pentagon's bug bounty program, and he told me how the unique hacker perspective has helped tighten up our national cybersecurity. Hello, I'm Alexander Romero. Romero grew up as a working class kid outside of DC. My parents didn't, uh, we weren't really rich, kind of grew up with, you know, not very much money. But that didn't stop him from exploring a love and curiosity for technology. So went around literally dumpster diving at times, looking for old electronics that I could uh, maybe make reuse of. And um, I very early on tried to figure out how I could make use of technology in a way that it wasn't necessarily intended to be used for very early on as a kid. I just loved making things work in ways that you just didn't expect them to work. Looking at a piece of tech and asking, how can I re-engineer this to do more than it was originally designed to do? Romero calls that the hacker mindset. Now, fast forward to Romero's 18th birthday. He says he wants to do something meaningful with his life, so he decides to join the Marines. The Marine Corps noticed Romero's knack for technology and brought him on as a security engineer. Fast forward another decade, and Romero became Chief Information Security Officer of the Defense Department's Media Division. I was basically in charge of a lot of the technology that was the most visible for the DOD. So one day, these, these folks in hoodies basically showed up at my doorstep saying that they were there on behalf of the Secretary of Defense, and they wanted to test my systems with a whole bunch of external hackers. I, I thought I was actually being socially engineered at the time, and so I asked for a letter from their boss, not really thinking it was actually the Secretary of Defense directly. The walking hoodies in Romero's office were the early leaders of the Defense Digital Service. DDS is an Obama-era creation designed to ask the best minds in Silicon Valley to solve the Pentagon's technical challenges, like cybersecurity. That was late in 2015 when DDS was first being formed. In 2016, Romero helped launch something that you might have heard of. It's called Hack the Pentagon. Basically, the Pentagon gave ethical hackers across the country permission to hack their systems and report bugs in exchange for financial rewards, a bug bounty program. We found that they are always surprising, right? Like what the researchers bring to our attention in the hacker community, they, they have always surprised me. Ever, just looking at the reports that they submit to us, sometimes they're very unique, they're very different than what our approach would have been when we were looking at the system from purely a defensive perspective. This general philosophy of inviting ethical hackers to look over the government's shoulder has been supported by the current White House, too. Last May, President Biden issued an executive order requiring all government contractors to establish a program for reporting vulnerabilities. 
Those programs would be similar to the Pentagon's, but doesn't necessarily mean money is changing hands. So, Ava, the Ethical Hackers program has been going on for several years by this point. And yet, we still keep hearing about cyber attacks happening to government agencies. Is the strategy not working? Well, we really only hear about the hacks that did happen. So we don't know how many times ethical hackers actually won the race against the bad guys. But yes, the Pentagon and the private sector both know that bug bounties and related programs are not perfect. Romero says ethical hackers alone cannot shield us from cyber attacks. So we need multiple layers of cyber protection. And part of the issue is that so far, most of these digital shields are focused on protecting software. One team of cybersecurity researchers is looking away from software and trying to rethink how cyber attacks happen. They hope their plan could end the race between good and bad hackers. We'll talk more about that coming up. ADP knows anything you hear. Anything you don't hear, anything you kind of heard, anything you weren't supposed to hear and now have to pretend like you didn't, can change the world of work. From HR to payroll, ADP designs forward-thinking solutions to take on the next anything. So, before I tell you about this new cybersecurity tool that's being developed, let's go back for a second to Kaseya the IT tech provider that recently suffered a huge cyber attack. This next part is going to be a little bit convoluted, but it's important to understand that Kaseya tried to limit damage here. Hackers broke into a version of Kaseya software that customers use through computer networks in their offices. Kaseya told those clients pretty immediately to shut everything down. Kaseya was trying to prevent the hackers from using that initial access as a way to get to other customers who use an online version of Kaseya's software. So the company deactivated its cloud servers to limit the harm that hackers could do once they were already inside of Kaseya's digital defenses. Here's Kaseya CTO, Dan Timpson. That's why we acted so swiftly taking our Kaseya cloud down because we didn't want, um, you know, without us being able to do a full assessment, we didn't want to put any customers at risk. Now, experts say it's a pretty reasonable emergency procedure to focus on harm reduction once the hackers have already broken in. But asking clients to turn off their IT systems because of a suspected bug is really a worst case scenario. And it takes time to shut down those essential systems time that victims do not have. Joshua Justice is the president of Jestech, an IT management company that uses Kaseya's product. He says it only took Jestech eight minutes to shut down their Kaseya server, but the damage had already been done. Within eight minutes, ransomware had been sent as an update through the Kaseya VSA server to our managed IT clients and infected 60% of our managed devices, which is 996 computers, laptops, and servers. So instead of a race between good and bad hackers, it's a race between bad hackers and their victims. Exactly. Neither option is great. That's why the Pentagon is helping fund a team of researchers who are trying to create a piece of hardware that is designed to limit the harm that hackers can do 
without expecting organizations to shut off essential digital tools in just seconds. One of the research team's leaders is Cambridge University professor Robert Watson. I'm a reader in systems security and architecture at the University of Cambridge. A reader, by the way, is a professor. Watson says it's important to start with the assumption that we're never going to have a bug-free, impenetrable software. And so we can only limit, but not totally prevent hacks. The bugs in software are inevitable. We just really can't prevent them with any technology that we have today. Watson wants to reimagine security by designing hardware that assumes a bad hacker has already broken into the software. Remember what Romero mentioned about a hacker mindset? Well, Watson says you need that hacker's mindset to beat the cyber attackers at their own game. He and his team are deconstructing a decades-old cybersecurity philosophy called the principle of least privilege. Really quick, privilege in a computer science context means giving access above and beyond a normal user. That's access to information and data. When you run software, you just give it as little privilege as possible so that when the software goes wrong, the scope of the damage it can do is limited to the things it has access to. To achieve this, programmers use a built-in safeguard called a sandbox. It prevents software from interacting with other software or with other critical parts of the computer. The computer creates sandboxes in the processor, which is an important bit of hardware that acts as the brain of the computer. Now, this idea of sandboxing has actually been around since the 1970s. We already put programs in sandboxes for a base level of security in our technology. But now, Watson and his team are repurposing this idea of sandboxes to keep pace with current technology. Every time we put a program in its own sandbox, every time we separate it out, it starts its own process. That adds a layer of security, but it also slows down your computer and drains your battery faster. The number of these processes at a time is very limited. You can have 10 processes at a time or 30 processes at a time. But if you want thousands at a time, your device starts using lots and lots of energy. It slows down enormously. So as we begin to try to put more things into smaller boxes, it becomes very hard to scale it up. It you know drains the battery on your phone. It's like when you have a bunch of different programs open on your desktop and your computer just starts freezing. Watson and his colleagues teamed up with Arm, a UK-based tech company that engineers computer hardware. Mobile devices generally have less processing power than computers, so the team started by focusing on hardware for high-end tablets and smartphones. They created a chip. Watson says that the chip can add more sandboxes to your mobile device without sacrificing battery life or processing speed. I send you an email. When they send you some malicious code, it gets access to all your email in all your accounts and all your attachments. But what we want to have happen is that when they send you a bad PDF, the only thing the attacker gets access to is that PDF. This research is still in the early stages. Watson says the mobile chip will be shipped out to labs and companies for experimentation early next year. Watson doesn't know if this chip will become a product that you or I could buy in our phones, But we're at this stage where labs around the country can test out this idea of securely designed hardware. People who build phones can try the chip out, hopefully proving that secure hardware is useful and practical. And if this next stage goes well, Watson says the processing chip could one day be able to be redesigned for computers or even for software companies like Kaseya. If a processor like the one Watson is envisioning had somehow been used in tandem with the ethical Dutch hackers, 
Would the Kaseya breach have happened? I pose that same question to Dave Timpson, the CTO of Kaseya. It is hard to say whether or not it would have stopped this particular attack, but if for the sake of argument, we could say it's completely sandboxed in an isolated environment where uh, an attacker wouldn't be able to access it, then I think the answer is yes. There's a good chance it would have prevented it. This hardware that Watson and his team are designing and testing won't be ready for mass use for a very long time. I mean, Watson couldn't even give me a timeline, but the chip would add a critical additional layer of security. So even if cyber criminals find a bug first, the company won't be vulnerable to disaster. Watson's strategy steps away from this race between good and bad hackers. And Victor Gevers, the white hat hacker who helped lead the Dutch team that identified Kaseya's bugs, sees a lot of benefits in Watson's concepts. But he says a successful cybersecurity plan will incorporate both secure hardware and ethical hackers. Any form that helps uh, secure coding and development of applications using uh, frameworks and sandboxes, that will be great. You have to understand that 100% security is impossible. Why? Because humans are involved. So what you can do is, is build like a layer cake. The more layers you add, the more things you do, will make sure well, you will get up with a safer product. So there's no single way to completely limit these risks, right? Our systems are just going to remain vulnerable? Yeah, software is everywhere. In our infrastructure, our government, our economy. And it's hackable by definition. As we've seen in recent cases, these cyber attacks don't just have huge financial and national security consequences, they can impact us personally. After the Colonial Pipeline hack, millions of people were impacted, standing in lines and stuck without gas. Hospitals have been hacked and had to delay surgeries and medical care. Now, imagine if hackers target power companies, waterworks, air traffic control. There is no one way to eliminate risk completely, but experts in and out of the government say that layering cybersecurity strategies will get us as close to 100% secure as possible. Alva, thank you so much. Thanks, Janet. The Future of Everything is a production of The Wall Street Journal. Stephanie Ilgenfritz is the editorial director of The Future of Everything. Lee Camping-Carter is digital director of The Future of Everything. This episode's sound designer is Sarah Gibble-Laska. Thanks to Ava Sasani for reporting this episode. Kateri Yokum is The Wall Street Journal's executive producer of audio. I'm Janet Babin. Thanks for listening. Enter a revolutionary business world where AI meets power with Intel Core Ultra and Intel vPro. Imagine PCs that boost productivity, creativity, and collaboration with cutting-edge AI. They're gateways to innovation, engineered with powerful AI performance, hardware-based security, and AI-powered threat detection. Plus, they're built sustainably and can be managed remotely. Transform your workflow with Intel Core Ultra and Intel vPro today. No product can be absolutely secure. Become an IT hero at intel.com slash ITHeroes.